Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're returning to our real life series this morning from James. Um, and I have to admit, I don't know about you, but I haven't spent a huge amount of time in James um, until more recently. And one of the things that I've uh, found out is that James kind of does these wonderful little bite-sized chunks of good gospel truth for living it out as a, as a Christian in real life. And of course, a lot of what he says is just taken from the Sermon on the Mount, um, from Proverbs. But if you follow the pattern of, of the, the various different sort of bite-sized chunks of wisdom, so to speak, then you get a sense of what James is actually calling us to. And what's even nicer is that he ends every single bite-sized chunk with an even smaller bite-sized chunk. And so the, the last verse of every single kind of like bit of James kind of sums up the bit that came before. So, for example, uh, at the start of uh, James 1, we see that we're intended to be these first fruits. Verse 18, of his, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, again, summarizing that bit that came before. And then we get into the end of uh, chapter 1, uh, which talks about real life, and then he gets into the practicalities of things. So, you know, we need to be both hearers and doers of the word, which means we, sh- we can't judge people based on worldly merit. And then we get into this idea of faith without works being dead and the taming of the tongue, recognising that our, our, our words are never as pure as they should be and that, that we, we actually have limitations um, and recognising that wisdom comes from above. And then we land on chapter four, warning against worldliness. And if we apply the same logic, then we can actually turn not to, chapter, not to verse 12, because I think that's actually summarising uh, chapters three and four, but to verse 10 which says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so I think that is kind of the conclusion of this session. Job done, have a good week, see you all later. Amen. Um, Amen. So I think we've got the conclusion, now we need to kind of figure out how did James get there? You know, what is he telling us? What does it mean to humble ourselves before God so that he will exalt us? And of course, James 4 also comes with a fairly stark warning, which is that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Right, and that, I don't know if if that scares you, but that kind of terrifies me because it says while we were still enemies of God, you know, while we were still in our sin, he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. Well, I'm a Christian, right? So surely I, I can't be an enemy to God, but that's what it's saying here. So how do we understand this? Well, we don't need to look much further than Matthew 6, where um, we're told that you know, we cannot serve God and mammon, which is, we often translate as money, but actually means earthly gain. Um, and I think the, kind of the same sort of sentiment is, is here in this passage, that effectively we can't run in two different directions at the same time. We can't run towards God, and at the same time be desiring earthly things, the, the things of this world and uh, the pleasures of the flesh. And the the root cause of these things seems to be what James calls our passions that are at war within us. Now, I think there's often a a danger for us, even as Christians, perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time, um, there's a danger that we can do something which is actually the opposite of one of the most common uh, fallacies in in the Christian life uh, today, which is called narcissism. So if you've heard of narcissism, it's when you read yourself into scripture. Right? So you, you might have seen these things on YouTube where there are preachers standing at the front going, yes, I'm David and I can slay my giants. And we kind of forget the fact that David is actually 
a symbolic version of Christ, and it's Christ that slays our giants, not ourselves. But we can also kind of read ourselves out of Scripture. So when it says, so you murder, you kind of think, no, I do not. That's not me. You're not talking about me. You cover and cannot obtain. Okay, maybe a little bit me. Fight and quarrel. Okay, occasionally ask my wife, probably true. But I'm not an adulterer, right? So this surely isn't about me. And I think in this, James is touching on what I think the, the heart of this passage is really about. And that's two things. An understanding of the secular worldview and an understanding of the biblical worldview. An understanding of truth. And I think what James does throughout chapter 4 is basically give us the foundations, if you will, for living out the Christian life. The, The biblical worldview. And if we understand the biblical worldview, then I think everything else starts falling into place. Now, the one thing we need to remember is that the biblical worldview is not our default position. I wish it was, but it's not. We are sinful, unfortunately. It means we must learn it. We must seek to understand it. Um, but that also means we should seek to understand the secular worldview, because if we're going to guard against it, we need to know what we're guarding against. Let me give you an example, right? And this is, again, an example of us reading ourselves out of the biblical world, uh, sorry, out of, out of scripture. Right, there's a common message today that most people are inherently good. Right? But what is the biblical worldview of sin? Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Amen. Right? There's good news that follows that, so don't worry about it. <laughs> but the reality is the Secular worldview can often distort our truth. So when we read scripture, we can often take out the wrong things. George Barner says that the biblical worldview must be taught and caught. In other words, it's got to be explained, it's got to be taught at the pulpit, hopefully like I'll do today, um, but it's also got to be modelled. You know, Hilly was praying that we would be the hands and feet that God has called us to be, salt and light of the world. Now, if we want to be that salt and light, we have to do these things, we have to explain and stand for the biblical worldview, but we also need to practice it every day. We need to be intentional about the way we behave. A good example for you, when Jesus taught his disciples to love one another, he didn't just tell them, he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. Okay, he taught and caught the good news of the gospel. So there are three things I just want to call out of this passage this morning. Um, Three very simple things, and it's right there in Scripture, um, that I think are the foundations, if you will, for how James wants us to understand the biblical worldview. Number one, and this is in no particular order, but I think number one is pretty important. Number one, submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is verse seven. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, submission is another one of those nasty words in modern secular culture, right? None of us really like the idea of submission, particularly uh, male submission or headship, anything along those lines is definitely a taboo. But even beyond that, in, in the workplace, we don't really like to submit to our bosses. We certainly don't like submitting to authority. Um, and therefore, we kind of associate it with bad things. But what does it actually mean to submit? So, yeah, to obey, to put under, to be subject to, to submit oneself to, to be obedient to. That's the you know, dictionary definition, and that's, that's accurate. But actually, the Greek that it comes from 
which I won't try and pronounce, but it's something along the lines of hypotasso, hippopotamus, let's just go with that. Um, it basically means to arrange under. Now that's something that I as a strategist can get my head around. So for those who don't know, that's my career, I, I work as a strategist, I'm a very passionate one at that. Um, and the way that I describe strategy is that it's a system of activities that fit and reinforce one another that ladders up to something more important, ladders up to a vision. And a strategy is only successful if everything that you do as an organisation works towards the vision. So in other words, everything that we do needs to arrange itself under the command of a divine viewpoint. Okay? Everything that we do in life needs to submit to a divine viewpoint. So in other words, we need to surrender to the infinite wisdom of God as opposed to our own and rather limited wisdom. Let me just give you an example of how this plays out, because I think, again, we, we often see this um, in every single walk of life that we have, and we don't always recognise how the secular worldview is starting to kind of pull us in the wrong direction. Um, has anyone seen The West Side Story? Yes. Right. Who likes The West Side Story? It's a great film, right? I love musicals, I get criticised for that. No. I, get, it's, I love musicals, right? And, I, and actually, the remake of The West Side Story is, is, is pretty good. Has anyone seen the remake? It's basically exactly the same as the first one, but just filmed more recently. Um, but it is quite a good film. Now, for those who haven't seen The West Side Story, it's basically a, a copy of Romeo and Juliet. And we know it or understand it as a tragic love story, right? And actually, we, we herald the two main characters, Maria and Tony, isn't it? Yeah, Maria and Tony. We, we herald them and we, we celebrate their love story. It's, it's kind of this amazing thing. But let me just explain, or let's just go through and compare the, the secular worldview with the biblical worldview that James is talking about. And actually, James calls out these very two core principles, and he uh, kind of criticizes them. He says, so number one, so what is the story of West Side Story? It's basically about two gangs who are warring for control over a certain area, a bit of turf in New York, and they fight and they quarrel about it. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, verse two is basically a byline for the West Side Story. Right? This is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about envy. We're talking about desiring what you do not have and it leading you to quarrel. Now, if, if we're to understand this literally, with the early church, it led to murder, which is quite extreme, but we see it in the West Side Story. So worldly desire is a disease that will basically allow us, not allow us, to find contentment. And while we can't find contentment, we will continually seek after things we do not have to fill that contentment, to meet that contentment, these passions that are at war within us. But let me explain why I think the West Side Story is almost the pinnacle of how we celebrate things secularly that biblically we, we, should, we just shouldn't, okay? And that's the idea of love at first sight, right? Very popular today, love is a random, overwhelming, uncontrollable force. Right, you heard that narrative? It's in quite a few movies. It's in the West Side Story. Tony and Maria, they see each other for the first time, they magically gaze into each other's eyes, and that's it, they fall in love, game over, everyone's like, oh, what a beautiful story. Of course, it ends tragically. But here's the point. That's because that is not a biblical view of love. That is not a biblical view of love. We don't choose who we fall, who we choose, sorry, we don't choose who we fall in love with is a common rhetoric for today. 
But in other words, it's code for, I don't really care what my friends think, what my family think, or even what the Bible says. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That is called pride. And that is exactly what James is calling out here. Envy and pride. That doesn't really sound like surrendering, surrendering to the infinite wisdom of God rather than our own wisdom. And of course, as James says, this seeps into our prayer lives. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So when we follow our own corrupt views and inclinations, we effectively continue to disappoint ourselves. Because like any good father, God doesn't give us the things that we shouldn't have. So when we pray to fill that void, to, to, you know, because we want what we don't have, and he says no, we just get more and more infuriated. Right? So it leads us into this perpetual cycle. Now, we need to understand that submission isn't a nasty word. In fact, it's, it's what we in the strategy game call our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal. Jesus is our big, hairy, audacious goal. It's a bit of a weird picture, I know. But he is. Because when we ask God for his wisdom, for, for his purpose to reign in our lives, then we can stop worrying about the, the petty little things that we want, the, the things that cause the quarrel and the fights. Because we don't need those things. We just need to Jesus. Number two, draw near to God. Draw near to God. So this is taken from verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Gosh. Um, <laughs> Now, as human beings, we tend to think in opposites. We tend to think in black and white, partly because it's just easier to understand things in that way. And again, as a strategist, that's also helpful for my job. It's actually very helpful to have these clear, defined boxes because it makes everything easier to understand. Um, and I remember when I, this is actually before I became a Christian, um, I had a team of, of sort of 10, 12 people at the time that I was leading. And uh, I recognized in myself something I didn't particularly like. And that was the fact that I re- realized I was a little bit arrogant, to be honest. I'd done well in my career and I'd progressed to a position of leadership probably too early, to be honest. Um, but I, I kind of did recognize it myself. So guess what I did? I went out and bought loads of books on how not to be so arrogant and how to be humble instead. And it's great, right? Because you read all these books and it's like, leaders eat last. I'm like, yeah, I can, be, I can do that. <laughs> Five dysfunctions of a team, emotional intelligence, all these different things to help me to be more humble. I mean, the irony of that now is just brilliant. But here's the thing, and this is what James is alluding to. The opposite of pride is not humility. We can't teach ourselves not to be full of pride. The opposite of pride is Jesus. Right? The opposite of being proud is running towards Jesus. You can't learn to be more humble. What you can do is allow Jesus to change your heart. And once he changes your heart, you won't even be thinking about pride. You won't even be thinking about humility because it starts to come as second nature because he's changing you from inside. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands by drawing near to God. Okay. Number three, learn to weep. This one's going to get fun. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That's a good start to any passage, isn't it? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
One, it might sound like a bit of a depressing start. We need to ask ourselves the question, are we sinners or are we saints? Now in the Bible, it actually refers to those of us who have given our life to Jesus as saints. Right? We are no longer, we, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay? So we are no longer sinners, we are saints. We are saints who sin. And there is a dramatic difference between those two things. Because if we believe that we are genuinely saints who still sin, our foundation, our biblical worldview is incredibly different from believing that we are still sinners. When I um, was 17, I want to say, um, I actually, this, this story came back to me this morning. So my preach last night was very different to the preach this morning. Um, and one of the reasons for that is as I was kind of just praying about it this morning, God reminded me of a story. I was 17 years old. Um, and I'm just confession time, I was quite drunk. Um, <laughs> and I was sitting outside of a pub, and I remember just bursting into tears. I'd been brought up in, in uh, Christian uh, faith. Um, I, my parents were Christians, they'd taken me to church. Um, I kind of vaguely had some semblance of the faith in, in God. I believed God existed, but I didn't quite see the point of God. And it, this morning I was reminded that this was probably the turning point for me as a, as a 17 year old. Uh, pint in hand and all my friends look at me going what on earth is wrong with you and I was just in bits I was crying I was crying because on the one hand I kind of wanted this God thing I wanted Jesus it sounded great but at the same time I had a pint in my hand I had my mates around and I wanted this secular life and I was crying not because I was doing something well I was crying because I was doing something wrong but I was crying not for the right reasons I was crying because I felt guilty I still saw myself as a sinner, and in fact, that turning point, the reason I say it's a turning point, is I walked out of the church at that point. I walked out of the church for a very long time. Um, one of the things that uh, I've been doing a lot recently, probably unsurprisingly, is um, uh, reading parenting books, uh, preparing, shall we say, and, and two that I've been particularly fond of, I've, I've written them for the second time because they've affected me so much, are two by the same author. Uh, Pomo's a big fan, Vody Borkum, for those who have heard of him. He's got two fantastic books. One's called, um, I'll tell you afterwards, they're great books. <laughs> Read them for the second time. Uh, family, family Shepherds, Family Shepherds is one. Um, anyway, he says this. He's talking about discipline, he's talking about discipline children. Formative discipline begins with the reality that our children's greatest need is redemption and regeneration. Johnny doesn't disobey because he's cranky. Johnny doesn't disobey, disobey because he's tired or hungry. He does it because he's a descendant of Adam. Our greatest need is not to be better. Our greatest need is Jesus. Our greatest need is Jesus. And of course, at the heart of this passage is the key to all of this. Because as we know when, when they kind of wrote in those times, um, the, the most important part of the passage, we actually come in the middle. So turn to verse 6. And how does that start? But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. God, through the gospel and by his spirit, works in our hearts that we come to hate the sin we once loved and love the righteousness we once hated. And here's the thing. He knows we can't do that without him. But... He gives more grace. For me, this is the most counterintuitive 
part of Christianity. And if you're here for the first time, if you're looking in and asking the question, what is this, what is this Christianity about? What is Jesus about? Well, this, for me, is the heart of it. And as I say, the most counterintuitive aspect of our faith and the thing that makes our faith unique is that we're declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. But he gives more grace. We're selfish and we seek our own gain. We envy, so we quarrel and we fight. But he gives more grace. We think we know better. We ignore God. Our pride takes over. But he gives more grace. Let's go a little bit off uh, off piste, as they say. Um, Psalm 23. Um, beautiful psalm. I love that psalm. And one of the things that really brought me a lot of comfort was when I recognised that this is all about Jesus. And there is some really good news behind this, so bear with me. And it's, sorry, I'm going to make sense to go off piece, I think. We'll find out. So let me just read the first bit. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. For his name's sake. Sometimes we can kind of read these scriptures and go, well, yeah, I don't really feel like I'm lying down in green pastures right now. You know, maybe I haven't been good enough. Maybe I haven't done the right thing this week. What did I get up to last night? I think was the comment made. Well, the good news is it's not based on us because it's for his name's sake. Hilly, when you were praying, you, you referenced Ephesians 5. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 1, I should say. Um, let me just turn to that. I dug it out earlier. Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? which is what you prayed. How does that go on? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. He died for us because he loves us, but he died for us for his glory. And so it is so irrelevant how good we are, or how well behaved we are, or how full of pride or arrogance we are, because he has doing, is, is changing us, conforming us to the image of his son for his glory. That is good news because it's not dependent on us. To the praise of his glorious grace. It's about saying, Lord, I know I'm going to mess up. But this is all for you. And that's why I can have a confidence because you will never fail. You are the same today as yesterday, as always. So we get to the conclusion so we've, we've got these kind of three kind of key areas um, that James is talking about. And then he kind of gets to this idea of humbling yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think if we kind of take all of these things into totality and we kind of try and understand what James is saying and what it means to really humble ourselves before God, it's simply this. Our greatest need isn't to be better. Now, if we're serious about resisting the devil... We need to get serious about submitting to God. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right? We don't learn to be more content with what we have and less envious. It's not going to do anything. We don't need to be, learn to be less humble, right? Sorry, to be more humble, <laughs> even, and to be less full of pr- pride. We simply need to turn and run towards Jesus. We need to draw close to God. That is how we resist the devil. We don't need to whip ourselves every time we put a foot wrong, as I used to do, <laughs> and what eventually led me away from faith, ironically. We simply need to humble ourselves and acknowledge we will never get it right. God is giving us a heart of flesh. It says that in his word. We need to learn to weep, not because we're feeling guilty, but because God will change our hearts. We will come to hate the things that he hates. Pride. Envy. All the things that James is calling out. I want to draw to a close. Um, gosh, I do go on a bit, don't I? Um, and I was, I was kind of trying to think how to, how to end this. And to be honest, I wasn't even sure this morning. Um, it sounds like I haven't prepared. I've been preparing for a week. So I just, <laughs> it's just got to be taking me in all kinds of different directions. Um, but the, the thing that I was trying to think about is this, this idea of submitting to God and, and he will exalt you. And the, the verse that came to mind, or verses, the passage that came to mind was from Philippians 2. And it says this, have this mind amongst yourselves. And this, I think, is, again, just the biblical worldview playing out. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Now, I think as Christians, even, we can get ourselves into this kind of weird dichotomy where we're like, we know we need to do better, right? We know we need to be more humble, be less full of pride, um, to to be less envious and to just be content with what we have. But the answer to that is not working harder as the secular worldview would have you believe. You know, it's that classic of, you can achieve anything you want to as long as you put your heart and mind into it. I think that's cruel. I think that is a, a, a terrible burden to put on anything, anyone. You can do it. You can achieve anything you want to, if you're good enough. That's horrible. Who wants that kind of worldview? I'd rather a a biblical worldview that basically says, you can mess up as often as it takes, but God has got you because it is for his glory that he is transforming your heart. That's the kind of biblical worldview that I want. And that's my encouragement to you this morning.